Hey friends, you know what I don't miss at all? That vicious week before the period. Feeling like I'm ready to crawl out of my skin, irritated by everything and everyone around me. Bouncing between cravings for salty foods and sweets and back again. Now it's easier to manage PMS with Estro Control from Happy Mammoth. Estro Control contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like the chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a menstruating person's life. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like myself again. That's what people mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Happy Mammoth products, including Estro Control. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CORP, C-O-R-P, at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code C-O-R-P for 15% off today. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. Now, look, every now and then we try to mix it up for y'all. So, look, dependency and consistency is really important. But even within those lanes of consistency, you got to have a little bit of variety. You know what I mean? You don't come home and just eat the same thing every day. Or even if you do, you know, you got a meal prep thing. Maybe sometimes you put a little red sauce. Maybe sometimes you put a little green sauce. You know, you got to just, you know, mix it up from time to time. Maybe sometimes you grill it. Maybe sometimes you saute. Maybe sometimes you rotisserie. You got to just. Am I hungry? Yes, I'm hungry. Y'all. My bad. Listen. Check it out. We have another entry <laughs> for y'all from our See It to Be It series. Amy C. Weininger, CEO of Lead at Any Level, as well as the author of Network Beyond Bias. She's actually been a member of the team for so while for a while now. So shout out to you, Amy. Yes, thank you very much for all of your work here. Um, and part of her work has been in driving the series called See It to Be It. And the purpose of the series is to actually highlight black and brown professionals in these very prestigious roles, like within uh, industries that maybe we, and when I say we, I mean black and brown folks, I see y'all, that we may not always even know exist or envision ourselves in, hence the name of the series, right? So check this out. We're going to go ahead and transition from here. The next thing you're going to hear is an interview with Amy C. Weininger and a super dope professional. I know y'all going to love it. Catch y'all next time. Peace. Rosie Zelenskis, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am doing well, Amy. How are you? Great. It is so good to have you um, on the show today. And I was wondering, could you tell our listeners a little bit about what it is that you do? Yes. So first of all, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's very exciting. So what it is that I do, I am by trade and insurance underwriter. So I work with AIG, which is a property and casualty insurance company. And an underwriter actually makes a decision whether we're going to sell coverage to an insured. So that's kind of like the basis of what an underwriter does. Not a lot of people really know what an underwriter is because we're behind the scenes. So when you go to your insurance broker, the broker says, what kind of insurance do you need? The insurance says, well, I need auto or homeowners insurance. And they just, they know that they're applying for something and they have the broker to have the conversation with, but 
behind the scenes, the broker sends the application to the insurance company, the underwriter reviews the application, and then we analyze everything and we say, yes, we're going to take a chance and we're going to sell you insurance. So people don't really know that from an underwriting perspective, we do that behind the scenes. Now, my role right now is a home office role. So it's a little bit more countrywide, but by trade, that's what an underwriter does. So people can think of an underwriter in insurance kind of like a loan officer at a bank. Is that correct? Yes. yes so exactly. you're not you're not selling a policy. You're deciding whether someone is a good risk for your company for that type of policy. Correct. And okay. some, some people may say that we're a little bit of inside sales because we do have conversations with brokers. We vet the risks and then we, you know, kind of figure out how we can customize our product to sell that coverage to the insured. Okay. Excellent. And I know some underwriters specialize in a particular line of business. Um, some underwriters do only, let's say, um, fire risk for manufacturing facilities, for example, something very specific. Do you underwrite a lot of different lines of business or are you specific to one type of risk or one type of industry? Well, we're actually a niche company as far as high net worth property and casualty. So it actually ends up being your standard home collections, excess liability, um, auto, of course. But because we're in the high net worth echelon, we're a, a niche um, product. Okay, excellent. So someday I aspire to have you underwriting my policy is what I'm hearing. <laughs> Me too. Mine too. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So this is not, as you said, this is not like a high profile position that, um, you know, you read about on the news a lot or you see, you know, celebrity uh, bake-offs to try to get your job. So how did you learn that this job existed and how did you land in this role? So the way I learned about this job is through school. When I was at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, we actually had an entire department for actuaries. I actually went to school to become an actuary. I decided that I did not want to be an actuary when I graduated from school because I didn't want to study for all the tests and go down that path. It just wasn't for me. So through the university, uh, Prudential Property and Casualty came and did some interviews and I, that's how I learned about the underwriting position. It was a perfect fit for me. So I started in the underwriting position straight out of college. So that was kind of the, the genesis of, you know, the start of my career. But as far as how I ended up in my role now, it's just been a progression of various uh, different positions and obviously experience and moving up the ladder. And then just, you know, the bigger thing is being proactive, you know, being proactive about what it is that you want, what it is that, as far as the career, you know, really trying to figure out where you want to go. So there was, there's been a lot of that for me. Every three or four years, I feel like, okay, what's next? And then that's kind of when I start looking for, for the next position. Thank you for that. I want to go back to, you said, I looked at this and I thought, this is the perfect position for me. What is it about the role, but also about your strengths or your particular characteristics that made underwriting a good match for you? So an underwriter has to be very analytical. Uh, we have to make a lot of decisions. We make decisions all day long. So you're always 
analyzing the risk, looking at a, a bunch of different tools that you have to figure out if this is something that you want to approve or decline. So it was a it was a good fit for me because I was able to work with brokers. I was able to work with the team. And that, that's a little bit different from an actuary because the actuary is literally behind the scenes. They're creating all the rates. They're doing, you know, crunching numbers all day long. And to me, this was a good mix because although it's very analytical, you still have a lot of interaction with the brokers and you're making decisions and you're impacting people's lives. So to me, it was just a better fit than, you know, number crunching all day long. Thank you for explaining that because I think, you know, outside of the insurance industry, a lot of folks see actuaries and underwriters as sort of the same thing, don't really understand the difference. But I think it's it's difficult when you are, you know, when you're young, you're in college or you're early in your career and people are throwing around these terms and you don't really understand, like, these are the things about me that I want to use, right? Like you said, I want to be analytical, exactly. but I don't want to be locked in a closet. Right? <laughs> exactly. And so I think it's important to draw those things out and say, okay, if you're analytical, but you can stand to talk to people all day, this is a great fit because exactly. it's sort of the bridge between the salespeople side, right? That's all sales and all people and exactly. the actuarial side that's all analytical and not at all people. So. Absolutely. That's, that's accurate. Okay. Excellent. So now that you've been in the industry for a little while, what has surprised you the most about it? So I guess what surprised me the most is that the majority of the time when people ask me, hey, Rosie, what do you do? And I say, well, I'm an insurance underwriter. And they're like, what's an underwriter? <laughs> you know? So, you know, as I continued on my career, that kind of still surprises me today because I think the underwriting field is much more common than it was when I started way back when, 27 years ago. But I think that's the biggest thing that, that surprises me. And even like today, when my children who are 18 and 21, uh, when they're asked, what does your mom do? They're like, I don't know, something in insurance. You know, It's like after all these years. So in my family, the same thing. It's like, you know, it, so that's what surprises me that, you know, people still really don't know what an underwriter does. Yep. I, I would agree with that. And I've seen that myself and. Um, and that's frustrating, right? Because you think, wow, I'm out here saving the world, like literally yeah. protecting people from, from, you know, loss of, of life and property and nobody even knows who I am or what exactly. I do. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this, because I know when, when I approached you about doing this interview, you said, and I, I hope I'm quoting you accurately. You said, I'm a hundred percent Mexican and I'm an underwriter and there aren't that many of us. Am I getting Correct. it about right? That's correct. Yes. Okay. So can you tell me in this environment, because, you know, I think a lot of people have an image and it's probably not completely unfounded that the insurance industry is comprised almost exclusively of old white dudes, you know, <laughs> sitting around a table in their suits, harumphing, and then they get up and they, you know, go to the next thing, right? Whatever that is, their golf outing or whatever. And so can you tell me, how do you find community in your work and either within your employer or within your industry? Because I would imagine it's pretty lonely being an only. 
you know, it's interesting because one of the things that I get all the time is because I'm light complected. You know, the biggest thing that I get when I say I'm 100% Mexican is like, oh, really? You don't look Mexican. I'm like, well, yeah, I know. But so to me, you know, community is just being with my coworkers. You know, I'm very fortunate in the fact that the majority of my coworkers are you know, well, we're all kind of spread all over, you know, the country, but the majority of the people that I work with, you know, we don't even think about it as ethnicity. You know, we just are coworkers and we all work really hard and we want to do our jobs and we want to do the best that we can. So to be honest with you, I just find community with the people around me. I don't even necessarily think that I'm, you know, the only Hispanic person in, in my department. And, you know, there's a few other Hispanics around, you know, the country, but in my company, there's very few Hispanic women specifically. So I just try to find community with the people around me. That's, that's pretty much what I do. That is great. And so somebody's not in the industry today because the audience for the show is, is younger professionals or aspiring professionals. If someone's not in the insurance industry or they've never really considered this as an opportunity, maybe because they dismissed it out of, um, you know, a misunderstanding of what the role is, or they just didn't know about it. What would you tell them about how to get more information, how to get started learning if this role, if this underwriting role would be a good fit for them? I would say start researching, you know, just as, as always, you know, the internet is the first place to start, you know, start looking at insurance companies. There's, and like you've mentioned earlier, there's all kinds of insurance companies. So I've been in property and casualty my entire career, but there's life insurance. Like you said, there's mortgage underwriting. There's the commercial world has so many different specialty products like boiler, you know, um, boiler warranty, you know, whatever the situation is, there's just so many different types of risks. I think what you really want to look at is what are your skills? What are you good at? Because that's kind of where you have to start with to kind of figure out where you're going to go. So if you like to analyze things and you like to investigate things a little bit, then underwriting may be the right role for you. But there's also marketing roles that if you like to really be on and interact with people continually, then a marketing role is going to be for you. If you're a number cruncher, then that's going to be an actuarial role or even a product manager. A product manager position is another bridge between underwriting and the actuarial team. The actuarial team, they do literally all, they set the rates, they you know research, whereas the product manager, they create the product along with the actuary, and then they help the underwriting team execute it. So there's just so many different positions within the insurance field. And again, it's just, what are your skills? What are your strengths? What are you looking to do? But it's a great job. Being in the insurance world is a great job. You know, we do a lot of really good things. We obviously help people. And to us, it's just, we work really hard and we want to do a good job and we want to serve our, our clients. And so can you tell me a little bit about what you see in the talent space for your industry? I have heard um, from a number of different sources that the industry is facing a talent crisis, that there are a lot of folks who are um, close to retirement age and not a lot of new folks coming in to the industry, largely because they don't know about it. But what do you see in future trends? What jobs do you see available? What skills do you think are needed? 
See, I, I don't actually see that. Yes, we do have people retiring, but we do have a lot of new talent coming in. So the company that I work for, AIG specifically, we do a great job in seeking out new talent. So I personally onboard anywhere between six and 12 new hires every August. And these are college graduates that we are now onboarding for as full-time employees. So these are young talent, they're coming in, they're eager to learn, they want to be there. And the training program that we have is phenomenal because it's between six and 12 months, depending on, you know, the, the position that you're um, applying for. But I would dispute that a little bit because it might depend on the company. Um, again, we do a great job at and, and when I say six to 12 new hires, that's just for my niche of AIG. Typically we have between two and 300 worldwide that we employ. And these are graduates that are coming out or they have been in the industry for maybe one to two years. So, um, so I think again, it's just getting the message out there that the insurance industry does have a lot of opportunity and specifically with uh, the high net worth um, niche, there is so much talent in our organization and even in like other companies that do the same thing. We have a tremendous amount of talent in our organization. You mentioned that you do a lot of college recruiting and a lot of new college hires. Fewer colleges have risk management and insurance majors than did 30, 40 years ago. What kinds of majors are you looking for? Um, or do you even know when they go out to do college recruiting? Yeah, no, pretty much. Um, I think for an underwriting position, a business major would be perfectly fine. You know, so any kind of even degree, because we've had people that have had, um, you know, psychology degrees, teaching degrees, and, and they just, you know, insurance is one of those things that we say, you know, people fall into insurance. It's kind of, oh, my mom knew this, or my dad worked in there, my uncle, whatever. So very few people find insurance on their own. So it's kind of by word of mouth, but for underwriting, there isn't like one type of underwriting degree that they need or anything like that. As long as they have a, a bachelor's in something and they have um, some kind of analytical skills and, you know, they have the people skills, you know, being able to talk to people, that kind of thing, uh, communication skills. <clears throat> now for something like an actuary, then yeah, you would have to have an, an actuarial degree. So it just depends. But for the most part, just a bachelor's is something that is adequate enough to get started in the industry. Okay. And so, you know, it's interesting to me because there are so many transferable skills from industry to industry. And what I'm hearing from you is the particular major isn't nearly as important as the right mix of skills and interests. Correct. And that, so that if somebody's maybe started down a career path in, you know, consulting or finance or something like that, and they're not really happy with their prospects, this might be a good alternative to consider because a lot of those same skills would transfer over and they could still be successful without having lost too much ground in their careers. Is that correct? Absolutely. And just to, you know, to go back to me, I graduated with an actual degree and I was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> so it was great that I was able to get into the underwriting field. Yeah. A lot of first generation students and myself included, you know, when I went to school, I had no idea what to do with my degree. 
So I didn't know what to study. And I ended up having to go back and get a second degree because my first one basically got me a job working at the mall. And so, (laughs) so, you know, I think for a lot of people just knowing like, you don't have to go back and start over like I did, you know, sometimes it's just, it's just a matter of knowing how to, how to sell your skill set in a new, uh, a new environment. And I agree, Amy, because I too am a first generation, you know, college attendee and my parents knew nothing about college, you know, was I had to figure it all out. And as a matter of fact, I moved from Mexico City to the to the United States several times. So I had a very difficult time. Like, for example, when I started my freshman year in high school, I had been in the United States through third grade, and then we moved from fourth through eighth grade. So I started high school with a third grade vocabulary. So I had to, I mean, it literally took me three hours to read a history chapter because I had to look up all the words, and then I had to understand and link them all together to figure out what it is that they were talking about. So it was definitely challenging. So when I started college in the United States, I didn't even know what a freshman, sophomore, junior, or senior was. So, you know, so I kind of struggled trying to figure out what I wanted to do as well. And I started thinking that I was going to go into accounting and I was like, oh, no, I don't like that. And then I thought I was going to go into engineering and I'm like, oh man, physics is just not for me. So then I ended up deciding to go to actuarial science and I did graduate with, you know, my actual degree, but that's ultimately not what I ended up doing just because I found, you know, the, the insurance world. So I'm so glad to hear stories like that because it makes me feel a little less alone that, <laughs> you know, I, I majored in everything for like three months because I had no idea what I was doing. Yes. So. It's good to not be alone in that. Thank you. Agreed. <laughs> so I had to ask you, if I may, just in the last couple of minutes, if you could finish two sentences for me. The first is, I feel included when? So I feel included when people ask me to launch or when people ask me to do things with them. Um, when I'm in community, that's when I feel included for sure. And then the second question is, when I feel included, I? I feel a tremendous sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely feel like I am where I'm supposed to be. And it feels good to be included, for sure. It sounds like you probably give a little extra, too, once you feel like you're in community and that you're really valued. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, one of the things that I really like to do is talk to people about their own personal career development. So, you know, I try to share and as a matter of fact, I'm just trying to share more with people on what they can do. Um, You know, what what is their next step? The one thing that I will say, and I want to make sure that that, you know, younger females particularly hear this, is that they need to advocate for themselves. Um, The men naturally advocate for themselves, whereas we women, we tend to think about whatever it is that we're um, dealing with, you know, we really hold ourselves back. So for women, you know, for example, whenever there's a job opening, there's a very well-known statistic that men will apply for a job knowing that they only have 60% of the skills, but we women, we wait till we have 100% of the skills to apply for that job. 
So I would encourage younger women out there to just go for it and just apply, even though you may not have all of the skills to go after it because the male counterpart is not waiting. And by the time we, we get around to actually applying for the job, our male counterpart already has had the job. So it's really important that we women advocate for the, for ourselves and just simply ask for what it is that we want. And this actually happened to me during my career where I was a top performer. I was volunteering, I was training, I was doing all the things. And when I finally said, Hey, I would really like to be considered for a management position. What I got was, Oh, really? And I was kind of puzzled and I, I kind of asked, well, why would you not have thought of me before? And what I got was, you never said anything. I'm like, oh my gosh, how did I think that they were just going to come to me and say, hey, Rosie, do you want to go up to the next level without actually voicing what my uh, needs and desires were as far as my career is concerned? So that's one thing that I want to make sure that younger females definitely do they have to advocate for themselves so that the managers know what it is that that they want yes and i think there's another lesson in there too for people who manage young women especially that what they want may not be what they voice and i know for me my move into a management role was because i had a manager who saw my potential before i did believed in me and groomed me for his role And it was about halfway through this process. And I thought, oh, he's teaching me how to do his job. You know, and the the light bulb kind of went off, right? And when he put in his notice, I was in tears because I I loved working for him. And I'm walking out of the room, you know, the the announcement was made and I'm walking out and I've got, you know, this little tear going down my cheek because it's so pitiful. (laughs) And um, I saw him in the hallway and it just hit me all of a sudden, like he's looking at me expectantly. And I said, how long do I have to be sad before I go apply for your job? And he said, turn (laughs) around now and go do it. I've been waiting for you to ask. Yes. And so it just, and if that moment had never happened, I'd probably still be stuck in a job I was in 20 years ago. Yeah. Because it just never would have occurred to me to say, Mm -hmm. this is what I want to do or to even see myself that way. Yeah. So thank goodness for the managers that tap us on the shoulder and thank goodness for the young women who speak up for themselves. Absolutely. And I try to, you know, advocate for women in my corporation. When I see somebody that, you know, a job opening, I'm like, oh, so-and-so would be really good for them. So I, you know, make it a point to say, hey, can you come to my office for five minutes? I want to, you know, talk to you about something. Sometimes they're like, really? You think so? I'm like, yes, I do. Go do it. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. All right. Well, Rosie, thank you so much for being a guest on See It to Be It today. I really appreciate your perspective and your experience. And I look forward to seeing more great things from your career. Thank you so much, Amy. I really appreciate your time as well. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.